John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. And now John was, was also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was being before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testify about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and is it now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth, and, and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testified to what he has seen and heard but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Thanks, Minley. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. Uh, so I pray this morning that you might take my feeble words that so imperfectly describe what you are like and show us why your Son is worthy of all praise. Amen. Uh, well, let me have a welcome to that of Bernie's before. My name's Geoffrey Lynn. Uh, it's great to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. Can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you are given as you came in? Uh, you'll see on the inside that there's a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to cover, a place for you to take some notes. Um, the entire reading has been reprinted in there as well for you, so if you have that open, you won't need the Bible, you won't need to juggle the, juggle the Bible on your laps as well. And you'll see there's a discussion question that we're going to get to a little bit later on that I'll get you just to turn and share with the person next to you. Uh, we're making our way through this series on uh, John's Book of Signs, and uh, so far in the series, you'll see on the top left there the story so far. Um, right in the beginning, uh, we saw how what God is doing in Jesus was actually from, from the very beginning of the world. Um, in the second week, John chapter 1, uh, especially we saw the Lamb of God uh, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, who does what none of us can do, He atones for our sin. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, that amazing miracle, the transformation of water into wine at the wedding, um, which actually is a sign showing who Jesus is and what he can do. And then last week uh, with Nicodemus, that amazing passage reminding us that why God does all of this is because he loves us. So we come this week uh, to the second part of chapter 3 and the problem, which you'll see there on your handout, the problem of point 1 verses 22 through 26. Follow along with me in John chapter 3. I'm going to read it again, this first paragraph there on your handout. 
John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now, John was also baptising at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming in being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. Uh, Well, let's start with the problem today. Uh, Jesus has left the capital, he's left Jerusalem, he's retreated to the countryside, but his popularity continues to increase. And as the crowds grow, a new problem arises. Uh, Verse 23, we discover that John the Baptist is also out there. Now, don't you love the little explanation that John the author gives for why John is baptising? There was plenty of water. (laughs) Oh, look, there's water, we should do some baptisms. Of course, the question for us is, is this going to provide, provoke conflict? Is there going to be jealousy between John's followers and Jesus' followers? Well, actually there will be, but not initially, certainly not between Jesus and John. Actually, verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, exactly what they're arguing about, we're not told. Uh, Although, you do notice that that phrase, ceremonial washing, it's a reminder of the water into wine episode from chapter 2. I've printed the verse there for you. Um, It's probably some kind of disagreement about the Jewish purification rites, maybe in contrast to the baptism that both Jesus and John are offering. What's most interesting, though, is that although John's disciples argue with a certain Jew... The problem they bring to John the Baptist is all about Jesus. So, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everyone is going to him. Do you notice they don't even mention Jesus' name? It's as if they're talking about some kind of shadowy enemy or opponent. And in the end of the day, I think their complaint is mostly about jealousy. It's as if they're saying, look, John, you were here first. Now the new guy is getting all the attention. Who does this upstart think that he is? Maybe part of their fear is that, well, if they're going up against the Jewish authorities, maybe they're starting to worry that perhaps they've thrown their lot in with the wrong guy, with John, because his star seems to be on the wane. Well, thankfully, John the Baptist knows what's going on. Um, His reply, it's a masterful insight into both human nature and, I guess, more importantly, into our relationship with Jesus. So, let's look at what he says. John the Baptist responds, point two there on your handout, verses 27 through 30. Let's read the next paragraph, verse 27. To this, John replied... A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. 
I just want to work through each of the lines there, line by line, verses 27 through 30. Let's try and see what John is saying in response to his followers' questions. Start with verse 27. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. I think what John is saying at this point is that he understands that he only has a partial role to play, a limited role, a secondary role, and yet, any part that he gets to play, it's still a gracious gift from God. Uh, That leads into his rebuke then of his disciples in verse 28. Verse 28, John says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. What John is basically saying to his followers, Hey guys, I never claimed to be the Messiah. I never claimed to be God's King. In fact, I told you I was the forerunner. I was the one sent ahead of the Messiah to prepare for his arrival. And there's a reference there from John chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where we saw this a few weeks ago. What John does then is that he uses a very familiar illustration to explain the nature of his relationship with respect to Jesus. And it's a very, very familiar um, illustration. It's one that we can all relate to. It's all about a wedding, a bride, a groom and a best man. Let's have a look at verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. What John is saying is that if you think about a wedding, from the best man's perspective, a wedding day is all about the best man making sure the groom gets to church on time so that the ceremony can take place. And once it has, he relaxes. The best man relaxes. He is satisfied, actually. His joy is complete because he's done what he needed to do. Now, to be very clear, in case there's any doubt, in this illustration, John is saying he's the best man, Jesus is the groom. So John's only wish and desire has been that Jesus, the groom, that he would arrive. And now all he wants to do is to look after Jesus' interests not his own. And that leads, therefore, to John's conclusion. Verse 30, it's there in bold, so you can't miss it. John's conclusion, he must become greater, I must become less. John says to his followers, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. What John is telling his disciples is that not only does he not mind that Jesus is getting a greater following, even if it comes at John's expense, not only does he not mind, actually, John wants to see Jesus gain a greater following. In fact, if you look at verse 30, John is saying, he, he, John, must become less just as Jesus must become greater. And the repetition there of must, I think it's trying to emphasise, actually, this is what God wants. God wants Jesus to be elevated and he wants John to diminish. Part of the reason I think why that's a relief for us is because you might have noticed that I skipped over a verse. Back in the first paragraph, verse 24, the one verse I skipped over, did you notice verse 24? uh, John, the author, tells us this was before John the Baptist was put in prison. 
The reason I think it's a relief to hear that Jesus must become greater, just as John must become less, is because John's going to end up in jail anyway. So not much point in him gaining a following in any event. Well, what does all this mean for us? Here's my catchy paraphrase, which I came up with this week. I printed there on your handout, because you're not going to want to forget this one. John's role must proceed so that Jesus might succeed. You like it? I spent not very long thinking that went up. John's role must recede so that Jesus might succeed. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, what Christians delight in is not only that Jesus become greater, what we want is also that we become less. In fact, we must become less. It is inevitable It is what God wants. So let me pause and let me ask you, if you're a Christian, is that what you want? Are you ready for this? Is that what you signed up for when you came to Christ? That He must become greater, we must become less, or as I said there at the bottom of your handout, Christians always come second because Jesus always comes first. Is that what you signed up for? Because it means that our joy will only ever be complete when Jesus is exalted and glorified and His name is magnified through all the earth, not ours. It's a big question. I'm going to come back to it shortly, particularly to ask what that might look like in practice. Uh, But actually, if you're thinking to yourself at this point, well, quite frankly, no, Jeff, that's not what I signed up for. Or if you hear someone who's not a Christian, you're probably thinking, why on earth would I ever want to be part of that? Then John the author has one very good reason that might persuade you. Uh, Although, can I say, it's going to feel like a bit of a tangent at first. So come with me on your handout to point three on the right-hand side. We've gone from John the Baptist's response, now we come to John the author's comment. John the author's comment. Uh, Here, John the author, he's going to explain what's going on for us. So pick it up with me in verse 31 through 36, printed there on your handout on the right-hand side. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has satisfied that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, as I said, at one level it feels like John the author has gone off on a bit of a tangent at this point. But actually what he's saying here, it's the key to why Jesus must become greater just as we must become less. Uh, This is why we want to be second, so that Jesus might be first. Again, let's work through it line by line. Start with verse 31. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Now, Just to be clear here, and I've written it down on your handout, when John the author talks about the one who comes from above or from heaven, that's Jesus, 
just as when he talks about the one from earth below, who belongs to earth, that's John the Baptist. So what John the author is doing at this point, he's reaffirming that John the Baptist, he is significant, but he's secondary, certainly in comparison to Jesus. So come then to verses 32 and 33. Verse 32, he testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Uh, Whoever has accepted, it has certified that God is truthful. Now again, this is a little bit, um, it's a little bit unclear at first. Verse 32 is not talking about John the Baptist, it's actually talking about Jesus. Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. What has Jesus seen and heard? Well, he's come from heaven above. Jesus knows what heaven is about. He has already been there, although sadly, as we know all too well, verse 32, many do not believe him. Although, thankfully, for those who do, verse 33, Jesus says, they have accepted God's truth. And so here's where it gets really deep, verse 34, verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Uh, the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one whom the Father has sent. He speaks the very words of God. And what that means for you and I is that when we listen to Jesus, we actually hear God's voice. And God's Spirit enables us to understand those words so that we can respond in faith. Because... Verse 34, the God who gives the Spirit without limit, He is the one who opens our eyes. I think this is terrifically reassuring for us. It's saying to us that God wants us to understand who Jesus is. And by His Spirit, as He sends His Son, He enables us to understand who the Messiah is and the difference that He makes. And so verse 35 then comes to the key idea, once again I put it in bold so you can't miss it, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Back to the, back to the initial problem, why is it so good that Jesus become greater? Well, it's because the Son, into whose hands the Father has placed all things... The Son can give eternal life. So verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The Son, into whose hands the Father has placed all things, He can give eternal life to all who believe. Uh, Although, of course, and there's a sting in the tail there in verse 36, the converse is also true. If you reject that Son you will never see life because our default position is condemnation. God's wrath remains on us. Okay, what's John the author trying to tell us? Here's what I think he's saying. John the author is saying that just as Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, so God the Father is greater than God the Son. And yet... That order between the Father and the Son doesn't demean the Son in any way. 
Now, for two reasons. Firstly, because the Father has placed everything in His hands. But secondly, because the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. In other words, as I've said there on your handout, that last point under point three, love is at the very heart of God. Love is at the very heart of God. Here particularly, the love that the Father has for the Son, into whose hands He's placed all things. Love is at the very heart of God. I'd just like you to pause for a moment and reflect on why that's so significant, uh, perhaps by drawing the contrast. Uh, if I ask, what's at the heart of any of the multitude of awful dictators that this world has seen? What's at the heart of someone who is a, an oppressive tyrant? Well, invariably, it's pride or ego or self-interest, or actually self-doubt. That's what's at the heart of them. By contrast, love is at the very heart of God. In fact, as John will reflect in his letter that he'll write a few years later, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, he will say that God is love. And that's what makes him a God worth serving. That's why we want the whole world to come under His protection. Can you sense this admittedly roundabout way that John the author has taken to show why it is good that Jesus comes first and we always come second? It's because of what God is like and because of that wonderful relationship of mutual, perfect, unfailing love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You recall that last week, when we looked at John chapter 3, we heard those famous words, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Wasn't it terrific to be reminded of the reason why God does all that He does for us in Jesus is because He loves us. What I want to say is that the only thing that is more reassuring than knowing that God loves us, the only thing that's more reassuring is knowing that the Father loves the Son. I'll give you a parallel to make the point. It is critical for children to know that their parents love each other. One of the things that uh, Wendy and I do is we often catch up with young couples who are about to have their first child. We did it earlier this week with a couple who we married a few years ago, but their first child is on the way. Uh, we tell all parents-to-be that the best thing that they can give their kids, apart from their own faith, the best thing that they can give their kids, well, it's not a good education, it's not a broad range of life experiences, lovely though those things might be, the best thing they can give their children is a good marriage because that's how their children grow up safe and secure, knowing that they are loved as well. And that's the reason why I think you can sign up for Jesus, why you can want for Him to be greater even as you become less. It's knowing that the Father loves the Son 
and has placed all things in his hands, which means that one day you will find safety in the arms of Jesus as well. Well, so what for us? What does all this mean for us? Well, come back to the big idea that I've been talking about today. The big idea, Christians always come second because Jesus always comes first. Our only desire is to see Jesus become greater, which means we must become less. Because when He gets the glory and His name is exalted, our joy is complete. Uh, To return to that wedding metaphor that Jesus used, once the groom has arrived and the wedding has taken place, the best man, he relaxes and he is satisfied. Uh, It's the way you feel when your best mate gets married, even if you're a little sad that you won't see them as much afterwards. Or even if it's a reminder that you would like to be married yourself. Still, you are full of joy. Because it's good and right. And it's what you most earnestly desire. So, here's what I want to do. I want to pause for just a moment. And the discussion question on your page, I'd love for you to turn to the person next to you. And I'd love for you to talk for just a couple of minutes about what could motivate you to want Jesus to become greater, even as you become less. What could motivate you to want Jesus to become greater even as you become less? Just as the person next to you, two minutes, share and reflect on that and then I'll come back and tie it all up for us. Over to you. All right, thanks everybody. Thanks for um, taking the time to start a conversation there. You'll have a chance to continue that afterwards uh, in the yard. Let me try and tie it all together. You'll see on the bottom right of your handout, there's a question there. What do you take joy in? What do you take joy in? I want to ask this question because I think in many ways it's the obvious application for us to ask from this passage. You know, there are so many things that we long for and take delight in, so many good things. A meaningful and successful career. A healthy family. A full set of life experiences, maybe seeing your favourite band play live or travelling overseas to the ends of the earth or maybe just a job well done. And all of those things that we long for, those are good things, they're wonderful gifts from God but it makes no guarantees or promises that we'll have them. It means that the one thing the only thing that actually every disciple of Christ longs for is to be with Jesus and to see Him glorified. Because in the end, only His name will last. Yours and mine, it will eventually fade. I want to say that if this is what brings you joy you will be able to view every situation in life with the proper perspective. With what you might call perspective from above. You'll be able to view every situation with that right perspective. Every pleasure, every success, every delight. They are only ever fleeting anyway. But likewise, every disappointment, every hardship, every single grief they were also only ever fleeting as well. Because 
if Christians always come second and Jesus always comes first, then as long as God is glorified, your joy will be complete. Knowing that you belong to something bigger and everlasting. Now, I realise that what I'm saying is big. It will actually provoke a whole series of different reactions in different people. Depends on the kind of person you are, in many ways. Are you the kind of person who tends to dwell, in terms of what you dwell on, are you the kind of person who tends to dwell on the things that you don't have? Or everything that you do? Are you the kind of person who tends to focus on what you've given up or instead on what you have gained that can never perish, spoil or fade. What will help you to make the deliberate decision to focus not on we must become less, but instead to rejoice that Jesus must become greater? I ask the question because when you do, well, Here is the lovely outcome. One of the things that will stop you doing is from being jealous when others seem better off than you are. Remember, in many ways, that's how this whole episode began. John the Baptist's disciples reacting to someone else's success. You You won't think you're actually missing out. Not if your only delight is found in being with Jesus and in seeing His interests achieved. Because actually being part of something so good is what you dream about, what you long for, what you sing about, what you want to shout aloud to the ends of the earth. How great is our God? Uh, Bernie mentioned at the start, invited you to fill in one of those little communication slips. I thought I'd read out one that came in earlier this year just for your encouragement. This is from someone who is new to our church. Here's what they said. It feels so good, uh, this is someone who'd moved here from overseas, it feels so good that on my fifth day in Adelaide, I got to worship God without worrying that my singing would be too loud and bother my family who aren't Christian, or that the gathering is illegal and will be shut down at any minute by the police. Praise God. Once again, I realise that what I'm saying is big. Actually, it's huge. To want Jesus to become greater and for us to become less. In fact, it probably feels like, if I'm being honest, a million miles away from what occupied your headspace for the last seven days. My guess is, if you're like me, most of what you worried about, what you worked towards, what you planned for, what, you, what caused you to go up and down, it wasn't this. It was other things. But remember... Jesus must become greater, we must become less, God wants this to happen. And what could help you to set aside self-promotion or self-advancement or even just self-interest? Well, the only thing that will help you is the assurance that you're not being shortchanged in any way, which you're not. Not if Jesus is first, because to live for Him And to be with him forever is better by far. And it outweighs anything that this world can offer. 
You see, when the king is honoured and exalted, all his people celebrate and rejoice in the radiated splendour of his majesty and glory. It is why, in just a moment, we are going to sing, all glory be to Christ. Before we do, here's my final thought. We've been thinking about what John the author has to say about all of this. He actually has one last comment for us on this subject, although it's not from John's Gospel, it's from many years later, from the last book of the Bible, from Revelation. I've printed a few verses there for you on the bottom right-hand side, which I'm going to read in just a moment. I wonder if, as John had this vision I wonder if you recall the metaphor that John the Baptist used in John chapter 3 of the groom, Jesus, arriving to be with us, his people, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, delighted that the wedding feast is about to begin. Let me read John chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, for what you are still doing and for what you will bring to completion. So we pray, help us to live for the advancement of His glory, for the honour of His name. And in so doing, Father, we pray in this week ahead, help us to fix our eyes firmly on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.